Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording January 26, 2022, we're presenting the first of two episodes in which we're exploring the bids from the two finalists for Canada's Future Fighter Capability Project, the Saab Gripen and Lockheed Martin's F-35. We're starting the discussion by talking today about the F-35 with retired Canadian Chief of Defence Staff, General Tom Lawson, who's an advisor to Lockheed Martin. General Lawson, welcome to Defence Deconstructed. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here with you. So we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about the F-35 and its offer to Canada as part of the Future Fighter competition, uh, that project. Before we get to that, though, um, can you take a couple of minutes to talk about the Joint Strike Fighter uh, project and the program of which Canada has been a participant? Because our participation in that program and the rules around uh, the management of it have set up some particular characteristics about how the F-35 could be offered to Canada through FFCP. So just start us off by talking a little bit about the Joint Strike Fighter program and Canada's role in it. Yeah, you bet. Let, let's go back to the genesis of the program because it kind of leads into the uh, the partnership. Uh, you know, back in the uh, early 90s when uh, fourth generation aircraft were kind of the cutting edge, uh, the U.S. decided that they were going to commission a, uh, a new fighter that would, would leverage the advances in, in technology that had uh, come about largely uh, in this thing called stealth that we'll talk about, I'm sure we'll talk a bit, a bit more, uh, but also fusion. And that's the idea of bringing together all the information uh, from external sensors that, you know, guys like me flying uh, F-18s in the past, uh, you had to do all that fusion in your mind. And, and it was recognized that that was, you know, the pilot trying to decide on how to prioritize all this information was was kind of one of the uh, the choke points uh, for, for aircraft. So their, their idea was they would design a new uh, aircraft that would uh, take this uh, into being. And uh, so the, the, all the main aer- American aerospace firms were invited to, uh, to put forward ideas. And in, uh, in 1996, the Department of Defense announced that Boeing and Lockheed Martin would be given the opportunity uh, to develop competing prototypes. Pratt & Whitney would be the company that would uh, provide the, uh, the power plant, the engine to the aircraft, but each of the others could design whatever they felt would best you know, advance these things, stealth and, uh, and fusion and various other things. So uh, in 2001, the Lockheed Design won and it was selected uh, to uh, enter the development and uh, demonstration phase. Now, it was recognized by the Department of Defense really early that um, uh, fighter costs and the development costs associated with those fighters was, was increasing exponentially. So with this in mind, uh, to help defray uh, the costs, but also to whet the appetite of people, uh, nations that would be uh, interested in a, a new aircraft, they, uh, they sought partners amongst the allies. Uh, and uh, in response, Eight uh, allies stepped forward, including Canada, and they signed on to a memorandum of understanding for the the system development demonstration phase, and then also included was a production phase, a sustainment phase, and then a follow-on development phase. And interestingly, Canada's first payment to this project office, this partnership office, was in 1997 under Prime Minister Chrétien. 
Now, the payments that each partner uh, country has made to this partnership takes into account a couple of things, largely the number of aircraft they're expected to buy over the, uh, uh, the life of the program, but also how much of a partner they want to be in the development of their aircraft, how, how much influence they want to have. For instance, the UK is kind of a senior partner amongst those partners because they've put so much uh, into uh, the investment in the, in the partnership. Now, uh, the key benefits of being a partner was getting in on the ground floor, you know, certainly contributing to, to development of the new fighter um, and uh, securing the fighter at the lowest possible costs. Um, but also preferential treatment for the, the nation of that partner when it comes to contract arrangements uh, to, uh, to support uh, and, uh, and construct the aircraft. But it was also agreed, and this is a little sticky, it was also agreed that partner nations would not seek industry guarantees as part of any negotiations to go on in the future. So you'll get the lowest price, but don't be demanding, like in most competitions, nations did. Don't be demanding these industrial technical benefits that you were talking about. Um, so the partners came on board and it was estimated they buy between five and 600 aircraft. The UK was, the, as I mentioned, was the most, about 138 they were planning on buying. Canada said uh, way back uh, then we'd buy 65. As you know, the Future Fighter Capability Project is now aiming at 88. Um, Denmark, Denmark said 27, Netherlands a bunch, Norway a bunch, Italy a bunch, Turkey a bunch, and Australia 100. Um, so it was expected that the US would be purchasing 2,500 for the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines. But it was also recognized that these partners that we're talking about would purchase between five and, and 600 more. And that's pretty much how it's been working out uh, to date. Uh, although Canada is yet to make a, a decision amongst the partners and, and Turkey has since been expelled as a partner for a very odd decision they made about purchasing Russian air defense systems there out of the uh, program. But outside of this uh, development uh, partnership, um, you can also, if you're an interested nation, if you didn't get in on this project office that you're talking about, you can purchase these things under more traditional foreign military sales program. But for that, you'll be negotiating a price well above what the partners are getting within the partnership. So, you know, a bunch of aircraft have been sold uh, under that program as well. Israel uh, has uh, purchased 50 of these. Uh, Japan has purchased 147 and they're building them on Japanese uh, territory. South Korea is uh, contracted for 60 and Finland for 64, Switzerland for 36. So. Uh, even some other NATO partners have come on board. Belgium has purchased 34 and Poland is, has bought 32. And Germany, who said that they would not purchase these things, they were going to stick with their Eurofighters, is now sucked back and they've decided that they're going to take another look at this program, you know, based on the success that it's uh, being seen. So, you know, within and outside the partnership that you talk about, there are now 14 services flying F-35s and uh, amongst them, they've executed about 275,000 sorties. So it really could say that, you know, within the project and beyond the, the F-35 has moved out of the, the new guy sort of phase and into um, a maturing uh, program phase. Um, and it's now expected that uh, purchases uh, may balloon outside of the partnership to, well, at least outside um, US sales to two to 3,000 uh, on top of the 2,500. 
that are being purchased by the U.S. Uh, and it, it is finally uh, worth noting that uh, the F-35 uh, has won uh, every single one of the competitions in which it's been invited to uh, into, uh, but Canada is the last uh, uh, last partner left to left to decide. Now, the last thing I'll say about the Joint Project Office is it used to be held tightly under the Department of Defense. It's now matured to the point where it's on a rotating basis of stewardship under either the Navy or the U.S. Air Force. Okay, so th thanks for situating that in terms of uh, the multinational uh, nature of the program. It's also, I guess, multi-service or, or joint uh, a program in the United States specifically. Uh, talk a little bit about the different variants of the aircraft, I guess, most particularly the one that's being offered for Canada. Um, what was it built and designed to do? Uh, and, and for whom are those different customers you were talking about? Right. Well, the F-35 has been designed uh, as a multi-role aircraft. And, and, and let's just take some time on that because it, it's really important. There are very few multi-role aircraft. Now, we used to call uh, the F-18, the CF-18 Hornet uh, multi-role because it had a certain amount of air superiority capability, could fire air-to-air -air weapons, and it was a, a, a fairly accomplished fourth-generation bomber as well. But multi-role takes in uh, other things such as electronic warfare support and, and, and jamming. Uh, and it's really tough for an aircraft to do all these things well unless they're designed. So it was designed to be you know, the first multi-role stealth aircraft. And um, uh, you know, during past wars, just to you know, kind of make clear, there really hasn't been an aircraft used as a specific multi-role self-supporting aircraft Packages were built with uh, fighter sweep, you know, providing protection over the top, uh, jammer uh, protection along the sides, and then the bombers going along, focusing on those things that they had to do as, as bombers. The F-35 is designed to do each of those things well, and we can talk a little bit more about that later. But yes, you uh, referred to the fact that there are different versions and the most popular and least expensive version uh, is the A model. That's the, uh, the conventional takeoff and landing model. Uh, and that's the one that Canada is interested in. Uh, there's also a, uh, a B model uh, the US Marines are looking for and a few other nations. The B model is the short takeoff vertical landing model. It replaces the old Harrier jump jet that we used to see the, uh, uh, the Marines using. And finally, there is a replacement uh, for the US Navy and a few other navies um, uh, of the, using the F-35C, which is the carrier version of the model. But the one we're interested in talking about, the one Canada's uh, having competed to them, is the conventional takeoff and, and landing model, which is the F-35A. Now, you talked about the program having originated uh, in the 90s. Um, it, it's now, from what I understand, it's into production. Uh, but from what I understand, can you talk a little bit about how the aircraft is evolving? So it's got a, a specific approach to technology introduction and, and um, updating. What's being, what is, can you talk about what's being proposed for Canada and where it sits in terms of that aircraft's uh, development cycle? What, where is it uh, now in terms of the blocks that uh, the manufacturer described for the aircraft? Yeah, you know, interesting you use the word uh, block because, um, you know, in old terms, the F-16, it had blocks of aircraft and those aircraft used to change significantly from, from block to block. 
terminology within the uh, F-35 program, when you talk about block, you talk about blocks of software. So let's just shift that a little bit and talk about lots of aircraft, uh, just to, so I can keep it straightened for those who are interested in things like that. The first aircraft uh, to roll off the, uh, the assembly line rolled off in 2006 in, in, in Texas where they're built. Uh, and since then, uh, you're right, it's been built in lots, uh, and now they're constructing, they're up to lot 14, I think it is, um, and uh, they're, they're being produced at the rate of about five, uh, four to five per month, about 60 per year, and this is called the low rate initial production rate. So it's a lot of things are happening as those early model, now shifting into more maturing model production has been happening. Um, to date, about 750 of those things, uh, the uh, of various versions of F-35 have been built. About half are in service with the U.S., the other half with other services that we've uh, talked about. The production concept has been unique in that it's been designed to concurrently produce the aircraft, early models of the aircraft, while continuing to develop and test it. And that's Kind of an interesting way of doing it. it used to be you, you pretty much made the aircraft put it up for sale and then refined it afterwards but this has been lot to lot being tested and uh and and uh refined as we go still uh worldwide there are uh, 1600 pilots flying these things uh and they've flown nearly a half a million hours so uh, the maturing nature of the program as it moves from low rate initial uh, production into uh, full production, which is is uh, going to come across in, in, in years to come. So as I say, lots one through 14 have been produced and Canada would be in negotiation, of course, for future lots, likely lot 18 and beyond. And, uh, you know, one of the downsides that we have to recognize with having selected the F-35 in Canada back in 2000. 10 and then pulled out of that and taken another 12 years to make the selection is that our hornets are kind of quickly falling into obsolescence and a lot of other weird things are happening where we have to purchase older models from Australia and keep ours going for as long as we can. But ironically, one of the benefits if Canada selects the F-35 is it would be purchasing way more advanced and proven models at prices far below the ones that we would have purchased uh, in, in that we were in negotiation for back in 2010. Now back to your, your use of the word block, uh, let's just shift a little bit to software because so much of what this aircraft can do is contained within the 24 million lines of software that drive this thing. So the F-35's integration of all its sensors and, and weaponry and its ability to, to be part of a, a battlefield node, you know, sort of a network, it's all developed and, and driven by this software and that's its most distinctive aspect. So that integration is realized through the, the software and the development of this software has been a real challenge really. The F-35 operating software has come about in blocks and it's now up to block what's called 3F. F is for the final version of block three. And block four is uh, going to be the final version, the last version. That's where every capability that was promised for the F-35, including nuclear capabilities, which Canada is not interested in, 
are all together. And then it will be that software that gets regularly updated uh, to bring in new technologies in years to come. So it's getting constructed by lots and then uh, loaded with software from blocks. One of the things that you've touched on earlier uh, was the stealth attributes of the, the aircraft and to, to reframe a question around survivability, which I understand is, is one of the, the focuses of the project. Um, and as a layperson, that's a combination of the, the signature of the aircraft and basically what other people can detect from it in terms of the physical properties of what it emits, as combined with um, other attributes like countermeasures or jamming. So you can talk about how the F-35 approaches uh, aircraft survivability holistically. Yeah, and I think this is really a good time to demystify the word stealth, because if there is a single word that's become more politicized than any other word uh, during the, the you know, last 15 years while Canada has been trying to uh, move ahead in a selection of fighters, this, it's this word stealth. And it's been politicized to the point that you, you might actually believe that it's either worthless or a bad thing which is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous concept. You, you kind of um, uh, define stealth in a much more useful way, and that is lowering the detectability of an aircraft. Then no one disagrees. You know, it, it, for as long as operational aircraft have been around, you know, since the First World War, designers and pilots are really interested in, in making your aircraft harder to detect, right? So early aircraft were painted, say, light blue underneath. So if you looked up, they were harder to see against the sky and maybe green or brown painted on top. So fighters coming down on you uh, would have a hard time seeing you. And then in World War II, when radar started coming in and uh, aircraft knew that they were being, you know, uh, enemy radars were bouncing energy off them, what they did was they started countermeasures where they would uh, drop little bundles of aluminum and try and hide themselves inside clouds of, of things that would bounce energy back. And, uh, you know, later when heat-seeking missiles came up in, in you know, probably the, the 60s when we first start to see them, it was recognized that even the heat signatures, you called, used the word signature, uh, you know, the heat coming off your engines a bad thing. It, it allowed the infrared uh, gurus to be able to see you and hit you with missiles. And so it was recognized that we were going to have to either try and drop decoys, you know, flares, which is sort of a uh, firecracker that pilots would drop over the side and hopefully pull uh, the heat seeking missile off or, or try and disperse your heat as much as possible. So, you know, your exhaust would be cooler and, and wouldn't be as detectable by these uh, these things. So, you know, the, the idea of being making yourself hard to detect, taking it to the next level makes you harder and harder to detect or more and more stealthy. And really, um, you know, another way that we've, we've talked about radars bouncing energy across, uh, against you, your infrared signature, your visible signature. But there's another thing. Every time pilots use radios, they send out energy. And that energy also goes towards the enemy and makes you able to, de to be detected. Later, when we started putting uh, jammers on aircraft, um, not only did we uh, put on big radar reflectors uh, that reflected energy, but also if we turned the jammers on, you made yourself detectable um, by the enemy. So it was recognized uh, by the F-35 designers that to really 
push this idea of lowering detectability or developing stealth. Here we'll reintroduce this word. Stealth is a good thing. All aircraft are attempting to be stealthy. Uh, the F-35 realized that to be really stealthy, to take it to a new level, you've got to build it in from design right from the start so that uh, all the weaponry you're going to carry is going to be internal uh, and you don't have bombs hanging off aircraft like the ones I used to fly because they're radar reflectors. Uh, and then you, you flatten all the surfaces of the aircraft so that they're beyond flat, cover them in radar absorbent material, shield the engine, which is traditionally a huge uh, reflector for radar. Uh, and then, um, you know, make sure that you, you don't use your jammers unless you're certain you've been detected. Uh, make sure that any emanations you put out there for uh, communications for your radios are directional and go directly through data link to the other aircraft that you want to talk to or other people on the ground that need radar pictures from you or ships that you're sending information to really with the whole idea that you can get closer and closer and closer to the target without having been detected. And realize what this does. If you're truly tough to detect, really stealthy, you can get so close to these air defense systems that you can deploy weaponry before they're even aware you're there. Right and, and head home before they can even deploy weapons uh, against you. Now there is, Russians will say, uh, you know, stealth is, we'll, we'll burn through your stealth, it doesn't matter. And it's true, they will. At certain distances with the air defense systems pumping out enough energy, even a really stealthy fifth generation aircraft is gonna likely get picked up, likely. But that, will either be as you're overflying them or just short of them and likely when um, uh, weaponry is on the way. Or you can step around these air defense systems and go for uh, the thing you're looking for. So really anybody who would say, ah, stealth, you know, not, not really worth talking about is either, you know, a, a competing aircraft who um, really thinks they've got a little bit of stealth in their fourth generation aircraft and fourth generation aircraft like my hornet we used to try and use tactics and things and and uh various uh paint and stuff to try and make us harder to detect um so you know there is some stealth in all aircraft some level of detectability but true stealth fifth generation stealth that's got to come from the drawing board the russians of course would say that stealth doesn't matter because they're terrified of stealth Another big focus for, for the project uh, is on interoperability. Uh, and and there's, I guess there's at least two different ways of thinking about that. So one is in terms of the operational and, and tactical employment. So how one aircraft can share information and work with another one, uh, as well as other units, um, ships or, or um, vehicles on the ground that it might be working with. And then the other component of that would be sort of the higher level strategic interoperability that Canada uh, as a NATO member, uh, as a five and two eyes partner, has to work uh, with other allies quite closely, and, and most particularly uh, the United States military. So could you talk about both of those aspects, both the operational or tactical employment and the interoperability characteristics that the F-35 would offer for Canada, as well as that, that higher level strategic piece? Yeah, fighter pilots have gotten into the aircraft and flown off like Buzz Burling uh, back in his day. Uh, he, he could almost be a lone wolf, uh, the Billy Bishop days. 
not the way fighters are employed today. Today, you must work together with uh, other uh, air crews in your package, um, you know, weaponry on the ground, on ships, uh, and, and all of that has to, day one of whatever conflict that you're going to be part of, it has to all be able to mesh together. It has to be interoperable. So, you know, one of the, uh, the challenges uh, associated with that is largely you need your radio to be interoperable, right? And, and uh, you know, the, to do that, key the mic, um, you really do, as we talked about a couple of seconds ago, um, highlight yourself to the enemy. So the way we used to remain interoperable with, with those in our packages of aircraft is by not using the radios as much as possible. You're as quiet, it's called radio discipline. You, you know kind of what the tactics are, you brief them before you leave. But at some point when you start to target fighters out there or try to find each other, we would always key the microphone. You know, you try to use as much discipline, as many tactics as possible but then radar energy uh, goes out. So the idea is to uh, make sure that as much of this information can pass between these aircraft as possible without saying anything. This is where we talk about this directed data link going with all very little energy going into side beams. It's going from my aircraft to your aircraft, to the ground station, to the ship that we're interested in talking to, and almost none of it going ahead. Allows us to be interoperable, uses NATO standards to be interoperable uh, with that, but uses directed uh, data link. Um, you talk about moving from, from tactics where, uh, you know, these things, um, basically pictures, situational pictures, are produced in a cockpit that gathers all of this information together from the ground, from others in the package, from ships, without talking at all, without keying the radio, with this data link. There's tactical and operational uh, interoperability. But you bring something really important up too. It's really expensive to hold international uh, gaming, like uh, maple flag and red flag and things like that. Uh, you know, in years of COVID, it's impossible. You, you really can't carry these things out in large numbers like we used to. They're very expensive as well. So how do you assure op uh, operability amongst NATO allies or coalition allies on day one? And the way to do that is you set standards and you meet those standards. Uh, and everything about the F-35, of course, because the U.S. is a, uh, is a NATO partner, meets those NATO standards and guarantees that all coalition partners who, who buy into that type of standardization are interoperable from a strategic sense, day one of whatever conflict we're, we're gonna be taking part in. Related to that, um, I guess, as you think forward, uh, you touched on uh, the number of other uh, users that uh, would be flying F-35 into the future. Can you talk a little bit about how over the duration of time that Canada might um, acquire the aircraft, how, how would we benefit from being part of that wider user club? That's a great way to put it, a, a, a user club. Uh, and, you know, when we recognize how long fighter platforms are around today because they are so expensive, uh, we really have to be careful. Like my first fighter, the, uh, the, the, the Starfighter here, uh, was introduced in 1961 and then it was retired about 25 years later in 1985. 
Uh, my next fighter, the, the Hornet, was introduced in Canada in 1983, and it's still going. It won't be retired until, you know, maybe 2030. So that'll make it, you know, 40 to 50 years old. So if the next fighter arrives around the same time, late uh, 2020s, for instance, it's not hard to imagine that they will still be going in, in, uh, in 2080, for instance. It's incredible, but, but, but very much uh, the case. So that has to be a key factor in, uh, in, the, in, in the fighter selection criteria, and it has been amongst allied nations. The, the question each one of them asks themselves is, which of the competitor aircraft is best positioned to maintain its capabilities, and even more importantly, to introduce uh, new capabilities and technologies in coming decades? So a prime reason that the F-35 has uh, won every competition it's, it's been involved in is because it's now estimated that 5,000 of these things will be flying uh, by, the, by the middle of the 2030s and, and, uh, and beyond. And every one of them has the, most of their capabilities tied to these 24 million lines of code that are going to be continually updated. And this code will be updated uh, without end. So, um, you know, to your point of uh, the value of a club, Canada has long decided to be part of clubs whenever they seek uh, defense and security, right? Um, our two primary allies, NATO and NORAD, there, there's a couple of military alliance clubs that we're part of. And it's telling here that nearly every uh, NATO nation interested in operating fighters is selecting the F-35, or nearly everyone selecting the F-35 um, if they haven't also done, all, done, uh, done so already. Eight of the nine partners you'll recognize um, are NATO nations, but other NATO partners like Belgium and Poland have come on board and, and key holdouts like Germany are now reconsidering their decision to stick with the Eurofighter as we talked about before. Probably the best known fighter club in the history of fighters was anyone who had purchased the F-16, which wasn't us. Uh, we bought the F-18, loved the F-18, but oh my gosh, if you purchased an F-16, you were part of a worldwide community. 4,500 F-16s were produced, and that allowed you a certain amount of fellowship wherever you went in the world, supply chains, basing, people who had F-16 knowledge. But even when you were part of that club, the blocks, they were developed in blocks. Each block was so different by the end that someone who was flying a recent block of aircraft, when they went to the country uh, and expected support from you know, the maintainers flying a much earlier block, they wouldn't get it. They were almost two different aircraft, even though both countries were in the F-16 club. The F-35 hardware, the F-35 itself was designed to be self-contained and largely won't change. The blockware, the, sorry, the software in the blocks will change, but if you're part of the F-35 club, flying a lot two, lot three aircraft is gonna look an awful lot like future lots, uh, lot 18, lot 19. That club is going to provide you a lot of those benefits of being part of you know, shorter supply lines, uh, worldwide maintenance, uh, uh, lots of parts and, and things that come along with being in a club. You, you touched a little bit on uh, the maintenance there in that, that last response. Uh, you talk a little bit more about the longer term um, vision that the F-35 has in terms of life cycle supportability. So again, if we're now realistically from a Canadian context, looking out to 2080 and beyond, 
Um, if, if we were to select the F-35, uh, what's the general approach that's been adopted in service support and supportability going forward? Yeah, right. So first, a couple of statistics on uh, the F-35's sustainability. The requirement for the F-35 program long ago was set at what's called an average time of six flight hours between failures of any kind. And it's now achieving nearly 50% better, that, better than that, about 8.9 hours uh, mean time between failures. And similarly, uh, when, when you talk in terms of support standards, uh, the requirement for maintenance man hours per flight hour had to be nine hours or less. And again, now it's achieving about 40% better than that, about 5.9 man hours, maintenance man hours uh, per flight. So one of the novel facets of the F-35 designed into it right from the start was the, their approach to, to, to maintenance and service support. Here's what it was. By having each aircraft directly communicate with central computers as soon as they were close enough to home to do it, even without pilots and maintainers knowing it, they were exchanging information, information on how their systems were doing, anything that was uh, showing concern or uh, wear fatigue. And that allowed Air Forces to immediately assess the health of the fleet and to start anticipating the requirement for repairs or even to pull parts from central depots to the base uh, so they could maintain aircraft that they knew were coming back with problems. So this uh, novel concept was called the ALIS, uh, the Autonomic Logistics Information System. Doesn't matter. It's had some growing pains. It was a great idea, uh, clearly, uh, but it has kind of re required workarounds because the main problem has been that the 1990s based uh, architecture is on both the aircraft and in these central computers on the ground. And the data exchange requirements have really outstripped the capabilities. They're up to A-list version 3.5 and it gets refreshed every three months to try and you know, iron out some of the bugs that have been happening with this really neat concept. The eventual fix is this, ALIS is going to be replaced uh, by a system called ODIN, Operational Data Integrated Network. And what this is going to do is going to make use of new computers on the ground and new computers uh, hardware on board the F-35 that's going to be installed in aircraft lot 15 and beyond. So the ones Canada is going to be interested in is going to come with this ODIN and, and this approach to providing maintenance, knowing what the aircraft needs as it's getting onto the ground is, is uh, you know, earthbreaking. So to switch gears away from the, the capabilities of the aircraft and, and talk about um, both the cost and then some of the economic benefit. Um, certainly fighter aircraft uh, and generally are expensive and there's been, uh, I would uh, understate this to say a high degree of interest in the cost uh, of our future, fight, future fighter uh, that we're gonna be acquiring. Um, all the bidders had to submit information on this. Um, uh, I guess at this point, I'm not really interested in the particulars because uh, everyone's got their own version. Uh, but I guess what could you talk about in terms of the acquisition cost curve? Um, you were talking about lots and, and what the anticipated lot might be for Canada. Where is the F-35 in terms of that trajectory on just the, the cost of producing the actual aircraft itself? Yeah, we talk a little bit about the irony uh, of having delayed the decision uh, to purchase the aircraft is going to be in Canada's favor if they get the F-35, they're going to get cheaper aircraft, but they're also going to be uh, getting better aircraft. 
Um, for Lockheed Martin, although I'm, I'm certain that they uh, wished Canada had gone with their 2000 decision, we'd be flying F F-35s right now. Um, it certainly is now to Lockheed Martin's advantage to be competing in a lot 18 and beyond because they're so much cheaper than those earlier versions. If they had, a, had to compete with those early lots, give you a bit of an idea, a lot five aircraft, just you know, a few years after they came online in 2006, one of those would cost 105 million American. Okay, just hold that in your mind for six for a little while, lot 11 aircraft had come down to 89 million. So quite a, a, a steep trajectory down and the current cost for building uh, a, a, an F-35 is now under 80 million US for the first time. Very, very expensive, but in co comparison to fighters that are on the market, well within and in many cases below other other competitors uh, so you know really interesting that these uh, this price is on a trajectory that makes it more and more competitive against fighters even though it's won all of the competitions that it had in the past as well so beyond the cost of uh, acquiring it if you're looking longer term um for the the life cycle cost and just lots of ways of defining what that means but basically, what, what's been the approach uh, with the aircraft in terms of how to minimize the overall cost of owning and actually operating the aircraft? Yeah, that you, that's the right question. It, you know, it's the right approach to spend as much time or more, frankly, uh, focusing on the life cycle cost, what it costs to operate an aircraft in any fleet, because uh, on average, about 40 percent of the cost of the entire lifetime of that fleet is going to go into purchasing it. The other 60%, as you point out, is going to go towards actually operating and maintaining this thing. So, yeah, you got to think hard about the cost of an aircraft uh, in its life cycle. Since, to that point, since 2015, the F-35 has uh, achieved a reduction of 45% in the cost per flying hour, now advertises a, a, a standard of about 25000 uh, per flying hour, uh, which is, you know, kind of an industry standard now. Um, you know, this is a very positive trend. It's going to continue with the arrival of best maintenance practices. And But you know what? There are a couple other things to consider than, than even just the cost per, per flying hours. First, you know, back when I was flying uh, the Starfighter, a second generation fighter, it was expected that a pilot would need about 240 hours a year to maintain a really keen edge on all of it, all of our uh, you know, flying skills. There were no operational simulators to help us uh, with that training. So everything you did, you did airborne and then debrief to try to get as much out of each mission as you could. By the time I would, you know, 10 years later was flying F-18s, we had some basic operational simulators that would allow us to practice some of these skills, you know, intercepting aircraft and, and playing with the radar, you know, working with emergencies. Uh, and partly as a result of that, the average pilot uh, by that time only had to gather about 180 hours a year, about 60 hours fewer than on older fighters. And at the cost of, you know, $25,000 an hour for gas and maintenance and parts, uh, you know, this is, is, is an important um, decrease. So the F-35 arrives accompanied by an operational web of simulators, and these simulators 
aren't the kind of simulators that we used to see back in my F-18 days. These ones allow pilots to do everything they could possibly practice in training and a lot more. You know, the simulators are linked with other F-35 F simulators, so you can work that on that, you know, tactical interoperability. But to your point about strategic operability, interoperability, they link to other uh, simulators around the world, and you start to get some of these, you know, large package training events that you really, you know, don't do as much anymore against really challenging air defense problems that uh, you, you really couldn't find uh, in peacetime, in peacetime, and, you know, ever uh, short of, uh, short of combat. So really what that does is, is it makes it possible for services to cut, further cut the number of flying hours required per pilot per year. And, and you know, we're, we'll be experimenting with that. Certainly, uh, you know, people in the F-35 club will, will already be doing that. So one other thing to consider when you, when you talk in terms of a cost per aircraft, though, probably even more important than the cost per, per flying hour. And that's something called the cost per effect. Let me, let me talk about that. What I mean by that is because of the, the multi-role nature of the F-35 and the introduction of stealth technology, not only do you need fewer aircraft in a, in a strike package, as we call it, to achieve a desired effect, but because of the stealth, you can expect your combat losses to be minimized. So in other words, whereas you needed before air superior fighters like we talked about and, and standoff jammers and things like that, the F-35 is designed to do it all. Let's take an example. If you wish, for instance, to attack an enemy airfield that's well defended with an integrated air defense network, and you, on that airfield, couple of miles wide, you've got you know, maybe 16 targets you want to hit. Hardened air shelters with aircraft in them, uh, weapons uh, bunkers, uh, fuel bunkers, uh, headquarters, 16 targets, which is you know, not unheard of. That's kind of how many aim points you would have. And in the old days, it was estimated by weapons instructors and, and experts that you'd need about 30 aircraft with superiority fighters, jammers, and the bombers. And to purchase those aircraft so that we can talk about apples versus apples, to purchase those aircraft and then apply them for the mission that we've just talked about, it would cost you about $159 million per target on that airfield, okay? Even then, you'd have to expect losses due to this integrated air defense. With the F-35, and this comes from a third-party nonprofit, the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, with the F-35 doing its own self-protection, sweeping, and bombing, the number of aircraft you require drops from 30 to 8, and the cost per target is about one-third of the cost of that traditional package, about 56 million. And remember that the stealth provided by the F-35 with that, much higher likelihood that these aircraft that you've put so much money into are going to survive the mission and protect the nation's uh, original investment. So there's a lot of ways to look at how much it costs to own a fleet of aircraft. So the final question, uh, I guess the flip side of the cost, uh, it in terms of uh, the financials uh, relates to a benefit. Uh, and then of course, the kind of the final big component of the procurement as with all big Canadian defense and other procurements uh, is economic benefits. So can you talk a little bit about the economic benefits that would accrue in Canada if Canada were to select the F-35 as part of FFCP? Yeah, bottom line up front first, keep in mind and I'll explain it, 
$17 billion, 150,000 jobs over the life of the program. Now let's just talk about where this comes from. The traditional method that Canada uses to determine which competitor for any program should get the most points in terms of economic benefits, like you just talked about, is by scoring what's called industrial technical benefits or ITBs. It's really just a technical way of saying the economic benefits that you just talked about. Which of the companies competing for whatever contract it is they're competing for is promising to put how much of that money back into Canadian industry, right? And then you score that. The problem, and you highlighted it before, is that uh, the F-35, if Canada purchases this aircraft, if the F-35 is competing from within the project, the partnership, remember what the MOU said, you're precluded from seeking guarantees for these economic ITVs, the benefits. It's a non-starter for partners. And to try and purchase these things uh, under an FMS, you know, the world price, would be ridiculous. You'd be shooting yourself in the foot. So it's really a non-starter. So, you know, Canada had to figure out a way to uh, assess in a different way the economic, the economic benefits for the future fighter competition, or they risked losing the F-35 as a competitor. And it, it was a close run thing, I understand, but in the end, Lockheed Martin found a way to compete the aircraft. And it, it's probably a good thing they did because if the F-35 wins, Canadian industry would be able to compete to supply the assembly lines and the parts bins for 5,000 aircraft, like we're talking about, up to 5,000 aircraft around the world, instead of a much smaller fleet that would be provided by a competitor over the next 50 to 60 years. And if we've got confidence in Canadian high-tech aviation industry, and we should, because recent history says we should, then the benefits that will come from you know, not these guaranteed, but access to the F-35 program will enormously outpace those that might be guaranteed through an ITB program by another competitor. In fact, we should take this and th those are potential figures that 17 billion, those 150,000 jobs. But even though Canada has not yet purchased the F-35, Canadian industry had by last summer gathered uh, $2.7 billion worth of contracts. You know, Magellan in Winnipeg making the tail, Avcorp uh, in British Columbia making portions of the wing, Collins portions the landing gear, Honeywell Canada making controllers, another 110 Canadian companies involved in providing nuts and bolts for different parts of the aircraft. Um, the benefits have been remarkable already. And, and that's when we get to what we're talking about here. Uh, a third party, the OMX economic impact uh, report provided, sorry, by OMX uh, estimates this 17 billion that would accrue to Canadian industry over the life of the program, 150,000 jobs over the life of the program. And so far already, we see that this has been spread out across six provinces. Imagine when the benefits uh, start rolling into Canadian industry, if they were to get on board with such a program. Well, General, thanks for joining us today to talk uh, about the F-35. Uh, the last question I'll ask before you let you go is uh, if you're not talking about fighter aircraft, what are you reading these days? 
Well, you know, uh, when my old fighter buddy, uh, Chris Hadfield, announced that he'd be putting a, a book on the shelves called The Apollo Murders, I, of course, had to, to grab that. So I've just, uh, I've just uh, finished that. And I got to tell you, it, it, it's a wonderful thing to recognize the talents of that guy, but a little humbling to see someone whose talents are so broad that he can write an uh, excellent page turner about, uh, about something as technical as that. He just keeps on keeping on. General Austin, thanks again for joining us today on Defense Deconstructed. Thanks very much for having me, Dave. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like our stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaiica slash support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa, and thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.